Welcome to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church. For more information on Sherwood or Pastor Michael Catt, visit our website at SherwoodBaptist.net. And now, here's Pastor Michael Catt. So let's begin. We're going to talk about from creation to a nation, the first five books of the Old Testament. The book of Genesis, a book of beginnings. In the beginning indicates the scope and the limits of the book. When God stood on nothing and said to nobody because there was nobody to hear it, let there be something out of nothing. And it was. And since nobody was there, God said to himself, that's good. This is a book of beginnings. In fact, it's the beginning of the universe. It's the beginning of time, of the earth, of our atmosphere, of life, of marriage, of family, of sin, of redemption, of civilization, of languages, of races, and of government. It is the central message of which all history has flowed from is the book of Genesis. Man is lost and inadequate. He is separated from his God. He is in need of a Savior. And you've got a lot of notes there in front of you, and I'm going to try to help you fill in those. But more than anything else, I want this message to give you an appetite for the God who revealed himself to man and man's need of God. And not just God in theory, but man's need of a personal God who came as a personal Savior to change our lives and to set us free. The key word in the book of Genesis is generations. Generations. It's used 19 times. If you wonder why we talk about the phrase, whoever wants the next generation the most will get them, because it's a key word in Scripture, how we pass on to generations that which God has invested to us. The key verse is Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Abraham is called out. God begins with a man to call into existence a nation. Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now, there are some key firsts. And there is a principle in the scriptures called the law of first occurrence. In other words, the first time that you see a word or a doctrine taught in the scriptures, then everything is built on that. It's the first garden, the first marriage, and the first law. You have the first garden. Now, the Bible is summarized in four gardens. If you want to summarize the message of scriptures, it's built around four gardens. The Garden of Eden, the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden at Calvary, and the Garden in heaven. Four gardens. God reveals himself in specific ways in those areas. But there's, this is the first garden, the Garden of Eden. Then we have the first marriage of Adam and Eve. And then we have the first law. It's a book of first. Now man is inadequate in his relationships. Genesis 1 through 2 talk about man being inadequate in the natural realm. We look out at the galaxies and the stars. We, we walked out and, uh, the other night uh, from rehearsal dinner, and there was a full moon. Man's inadequate to understand how that moon stays in place. And scientists try to figure out what God has put in place. And in fact, Albert Einstein said, science is like reading a mystery novel. 
Science is discovering and seeking what Genesis begins. And so when we look at Genesis, we ask some natural questions. Why am I here? Who am I? What's my purpose? Where's this world headed? What happens after I'm gone? Those are some issues that we deal with. Then there's interpersonal, and that's dealt with chapters 3 through 6. Uh, our relationships, and one thing you need to know, and why in the culture war battle this is important, every relationship in life, if the family falls apart, every other relationship is fragile. Because the family is the structure around which God has built a normal and sane society. The downfall of every culture has been because of the downfall of the family. And when we do not honor the family, and when we try to redefine the family and redefine marriage, we are going against the basic unit of society by which there is normalcy and not chaos in a definition. It centers, Genesis uh, chapter 6 through 50, or the spiritual, this book centers around five men. And you need to know these five men. If you know these five men, you know the book of Genesis. First of all, Noah. Noah is a picture of regeneration. Noah is a picture of regeneration because he lived on both sides of the flood. In other words, Noah passed from death unto life. Everything except those that were on the ark died in the flood. So Noah was around when judgment came on sin and on sinful mankind. He went through the flood and then he came out on the other side. He is a picture for us of regeneration. He passed from death to life. Abraham is a picture of justification by faith. This is where we first see this statement, the just shall live by faith. The father of the Jews, he's covered in chapters 12 through 25. Abraham teaches us that our salvation is based totally on God and not on any merit of our own. That we're on a journey. And that journey is a justification by faith that we cannot be saved by our works. We cannot be saved by our good deeds. We have to follow the Lord completely, and we are justified by what God does for us, not for what we do for God. The third person is Isaac. Isaac is a picture of sonship. He's a picture of sonship in chapters 25 and 26. Now, he was a son who was loved by his father. Isaac was not perfect. There's no way you can read the story of Isaac and see that he was perfect. But he was a son loved by his father. You and I have children that are not perfect, but we love them. He's a picture of God's love for a son, a picture of sonship. Then there's Jacob. Jacob pictures sanctification, Genesis 27 through 36. Here's Jacob. He's a schemer, he's a conniver, he's, he's a guy that's always twisting and supplanting, trying to do things. You know what Jacob is a picture of? Jacob is a picture of a person trying to please God by doing better and trying harder and manipulating his life in a way he wants it to go. It's a picture of trying to live the Christian life in the energy of your flesh. 
That's why Jacob is a picture of sanctification because when he comes to that wrestling match with the angel of the Lord, he surrenders and God changes his name from Jacob to Israel, from twister supplanter to Israel, one who has reigned with God and favor with man. His name was changed. When you got saved, God gave you a new name. You're going to have a new name in heaven. And so when you got saved, God gave you a new name. He is a picture of the process of sanctification that God is always putting us in situations to try to knock the self out of us so that we can learn to live in surrender and independence on him. So in Jacob, we find a picture of sanctification. Then in Joseph, we find a picture of glorification, of glorification. He was loved by his father, but he was mistreated by his brothers. The same thing, by the way, happened to Jesus. He was lifted out of prison to reign and to rule in the kingdom. Now, here's why you need to know the life of Joseph. There are 130 parallels in the book of Genesis around the story of Joseph. 130 parallels between Joseph and Christ. Joseph is a type or a picture of what Messiah would go through and that he would ultimately rule and reign. Now, Genesis begins in a garden, but it ends in a coffin. It ends with Joseph saying to those around him, when I die and when you go back to the land of promise, you dig my casket up and you take my bones back with you. So Joseph believed that there was going to be deliverance out of Egypt one day. And he asked them to take them back. And so they carried the bones of Joseph back with them when they left. Satan attacks this book. Why? Because it reveals life and death. Why is the book of Genesis so questioned? Why are the first 11 chapters of Genesis so questioned by so-called authorities? Because it says that man did not evolve. Man is formed in the image of God. That is a philosophical worldview debate. And I would prefer to think that my ancestors were not frogs. Now, if you want yours to be frogs, I've got some goats in my lineage, but no frogs. You know, if your ancestors were amoebas, I hope you all get together and swim together one day. Because you see, Genesis deals with a divine creator and with creation. It deals with a covenant people. It deals with origins and with outcomes. The outcome of not understanding your origin and God's intention for man. So you ask yourself the question, how do I please God? I have Abraham's faith. How do I have power with God? I surrender like Jacob did. How do I face death? I'm like Joseph. I live on the promises of God. And there's a three words that outline this book. Number one, the word generation. In the beginning, God. Generation. The second word is degeneration. Now the serpent came. Chapter 3 and verse 1. So there's generation... And then there's degeneration, and then there's regeneration. Now the Lord spoke to Abraham, chapter 12 and verse 1. So there you have the book of Genesis. Now we go to the book of Exodus. 
And in the book of Exodus, we find a picture of redemption, God's ability to redeem his people from sin and from suffering and from misery. It begins in hopelessness and it ends in glory. The key verse is Deuteronomy, is, is Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8. And if you want to write down by that Hebrews 11, 23 through 29, because it parallels it. Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8 is the key verse. The key word of Exodus is redemption. It's used 10 times in the book of Exodus. So Exodus is a book of redemption. It covers from the Exodus to Mount Sinai. The key person in Exodus is who? Moses. Moses spent 40 years thinking he was somebody, spent 40 years finding out he was nobody, and spent his last 40 years finding out that God's everything. So his life is divided into three 40-year phases from somebody to nobody to finding out that God could use a nobody because God is everything. Listen, when Moses said to God, I can't do what you want me to do, you know what he was saying underneath the surface? Moses was saying, not only can I not do what you're telling me you want me to do, be the deliverer of your people, I don't think you can do it either, God. And he questioned God's power. And that's when God got angry with him at the burning bush. Not that he admitted he was inadequate, but that he got to the point that he kept arguing with God about what God had called him to do. And listen, there's a point when God has called you to do something and you don't do it. What you're really saying is, it's not that I don't want to do it. It's I don't really believe that God wants me to do it. And I don't really believe that God can empower me to do what he's asking me to do that he's inadequate, that he's insufficient. God knew he was inadequate. And that's why if you write in around the first part of Exodus, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. When Moses is having that debate, Paul answers that debate in the book of Philippians. Moses was born under the sentence of death. His life was preserved by the grace of God and divine intervention. And the Holy Spirit orchestrated events so that the people of God could be delivered. So in chapters 1 through 12, they're in Egypt. And there are nine plagues in the book of Exodus. All of them addressing a particular false god that the Egyptians were worshiping. God in Exodus 1 through 12 is judging idolatry. He is putting his call down, saying, I am the one true God, and your gods cannot equal who I am and what I can do. So he's dealing with idolatry. In chapters 13 through 18, they're going from Egypt to Sinai, and the key events there are two. There's the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. The Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. Next April, we're going to have the opportunity to go down to the Red Sea, and we're going to go into an underwater observatory. I've asked them if there's an Egyptian and a chariot floating under there that we could take a picture of. But, you know, I, I remember sitting in class and saying, you know, it's not really the Red Sea. It was the Reed Sea, and it was only six inches deep. And because it was only six inches deep, this is just a fable and a story. My response to that, if God can drown an army in six inches of water, he's a big God. 
Either way you count it, the army was destroyed and they never pursued Israel again. Now, how do you explain the most powerful army in the world at that time? not being able to chase down, go around, and catch up with a bunch of former slaves who had no weapons at their disposal. You cannot explain the end of the pursuit of the enemy against Israel, except that God destroyed an army. You want to debate how it happened, you can debate it, but the army was destroyed. So there's the Passover and the crossing of the Red Sea. The Passover is a picture of Christ. It's a picture of Christ. 1 Corinthians 10, 2 says they were all baptized into Moses and the cloud and in the sea. Now that's the Red Sea. They went down as a mob and they came out as a unit and as a people. There's a great picture here because we struggle through life until we see what Christ has done for us and we pass through our Red Sea experience and we burn the bridges behind us and we find that God has something better for us. So the Passover, here's, here's why these two events are tied together. The Passover, God did it all. He did every bit of it. The death angel passed over. It was because the death angel saw the blood on the doorpost. God did it all. They were depending on him for deliverance and from salvation from the death that was sweeping across the land. In the Red Sea, God expected them to get up and move out. They, didn't, they weren't going to stand there and do nothing. God said, you cross the Red Sea. You go across that sea. And when they crossed over, they started singing. So you find in chapter 15 a song. It's the first song in the book of Exodus. There was no singing in Egypt. There was just sighing and woe and misery. But now they're singing in Exodus 15. So you've got two key events in chapters 19 through 40 at Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and the tabernacle. And they are tied together. The giving of the law and the building of the tabernacle are tied together. Next April, we're going to see an exact reproduction of the tabernacle as we go down into the wilderness out by uh, the Sinai. And we, we sit there and, and see how God designed all of this together. Everything in the Bible is there for a reason. Things that we tend to flip the pages and go on until we find some good stuff it's all there for a reason. Why was the law given? We can't keep it. That's why the law was given. Because it says that God demands perfection. And it tells us that only one person has ever fulfilled the law, and that was Jesus Christ. All of us fall short of the glory of God. The law tells us how sinful we are. Now, here's a key principle to understand out of the book of Exodus. Mount Sinai demands Mount Calvary. The reason there's a Calvary is because there was a Sinai. And the reason there was a Sinai is because there was going to be a Calvary. Mount Calvary is the answer to the fulfillment of the law. The details of the tabernacle teach us that God is orderly and he is holy and he is changeless. And, and when you look at the law and the tabernacle, it's not that they weren't good. These were good people. It's that they could never be good enough to please God. 
And when you read of all those sacrifices, which we're going to look at in just a moment, when you read of all those sacrifices, you realize all the blood that was shed in that tabernacle, in those daily sacrifices, in those daily ritual, to show to the people how costly sin is. And that it would take the blood of one man to pay the price for our sin, for hundreds of years of blood sacrifices to appease God. Hundreds of years in the tabernacle and in the temple. And now all of those hundreds of years of blood sacrifices, blood spilt, blood spilt, blood spilt, all of that now one man's blood spilt to save mankind from his sin. It's to picture to us how sinful we really are. That not only we can't keep the law, but we cannot appease God on our own. Now we come to the book of Leviticus, which is a book of worship and a book of atonement. It begins with and. That's because they're still at Mount Sinai and God is giving them more instructions. The key verse in Leviticus is chapter 19 and verse 2. And you can write by that 1 John 1, 7, chapter 19 and verse 2. The key word in Leviticus is holiness. The word holy or holiness is used 97 times in the book of Leviticus. Now, I will not give you all of them because you've got to do some work for yourself. But this book is built around a series of sevens. Seven being the number of God. This book is built around a series of sevens. Okay? The Sabbath is the seventh day. Some of you got that. The sabbatical year was every seven years. Passover was seven days. Pentecost was seven days. So the number seven is a significant number in the book of Leviticus, and it's built around a series of sevens, and when you study it, you can see all that. There are two keys to the book of Leviticus. Number one is get right. You need to get right. And that's what the offerings are about. When you see the offerings, you say, why are they having all these offerings? All these offerings are about getting right with God. And so let's go through the offerings. The burnt offering is about surrender of Christ for sinners, Leviticus chapter 1. Christ is all through the book of Leviticus. And most of us have never read the book of Leviticus because we get bogged down in the tedious details in it. But if you read Leviticus through the grid of I'm looking for Jesus Christ on these pages, you'll find him all over it. In the burnt offerings, it's the surrender of Christ for sinners. The meal offering, the service of Christ in life, Leviticus chapter 2. The peace offering, the serenity of Christ in life, Leviticus chapter 3. The sin offering, the substitute of Christ for sin, Leviticus 4 and chapter 5 and verse 13. The trespass offering, the satisfaction by Christ for the demands of God, chapter 5 verse 14 through chapter 6. And verse 7. So we get right, then we stay right. Now the offerings are about getting right. The feasts are about staying right. And there are eight feasts. The Sabbath feast, the Passover, Pentecost, trumpets, atonement, tabernacles, the Sabbath year, and the Jubilee. Eight feasts. Leviticus 20 and verse 26 says, You shall be holy to me, 
For I am the Lord, am holy, and have separated you that you should be mine. Now, what does holiness mean? Holiness means wholeness. Our world is full of broken people and broken lives and broken dreams and broken plans. God is whole. And holiness is letting God make you whole as he intended you to be in the first place. Letting God take the broken pieces of your life and put them together. So Leviticus is full of pictures and shadows, visual aids, if you will, so that when the Jewish people, when Messiah came, they would be able to recognize him. That's why you find Jesus in John 7 speaking at the Feast of Tabernacles, the pouring out of the water. And he says, if any man is thirsty, let him come to me. He says, you're doing all of this. What you're picturing, I'm here. I finally showed up. And all of that is not going to satisfy your thirst. It's just a picture. It's just a symbol. Now I'm here to satisfy the thirsting of your heart. And so in chapters 1 through 16, you've got chapters 17 through 27 in your notes. Let me just add chapters 1 through 16. Chapters 1 through 16 deals with man's need and God's provision. Man's need and God's provision. And chapters 17 through 27 deal with how we are to live in light of God's provision. Now that God's provided for us, how are we to live in light of it? And the reason for the countless offerings is to understand that our problems run deep. That's why all these offerings, that's why all these sacrifices, God is trying to say to us, our problems run deep. They're not going to be fixed in a five-minute phone call to a counselor. They're not going to be fixed by watching Oprah. They're not going to be fixed by calling the psychic hotline. They went bankrupt. Who knew? Uh, They're not going to be fixed by man's solutions and man's philosophy. The reason for the offerings and the sacrifices is to say, your problems are too deep to meet on your own basis. You have to come to me to God, to find the answer to the problems of your life. Now the book of Numbers, it starts where Exodus stops. The key verse is chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, chapter 14, verse 19, and chapter 14, verses 28 through 30. The key word is wilderness. Forty-five times you find the word wilderness in the book of Numbers, the wanderings. And Christ lifted up. First 10 chapters are on the move. Then they were a bunch of Baptists. They formed a committee, and the committee said, we shouldn't do this. After God had already said to do this, they said they overruled God. How many of you have ever been in a church that had a vote that overruled God? You see, God let one committee be formed. The next time he said, Joshua, you just go figure it out. I'm not going to trust those people to do that again. They had a committee meeting, and 10 brought a negative report back. Never underestimate what negativity will cost your family. Those 10 spies, you can't name them. Nobody wants to remember them. But the two, Joshua and Caleb, with the positive report, we can do this. God's with us. God can do this. We remember them. 
Never underestimate what negative attitudes and negative decisions will do to your offspring and to the people that you influence. It will be more costly than you can ever imagine. All this was was their opinion, and it was negative, and it cost them the land. And so you got an older generation in the first chapters, the wilderness wanderings, and then a new generation. The last five chapters, they're at the plains of Moab on the southeastern corner of the promised land. And this time, there was no turning back. Now, what does Leviticus tells us about the believer's worship? Numbers tells us about the believer's walk. So when I go to the book of Leviticus, I learn what worship is about. When I go to the book of Numbers, I learn what my walk is supposed to be about. And it's not supposed to be a walk of disbelief. It's supposed to be a walk of faith. The lesson to learn is to trust God, not my fleshly feelings. Proverbs chapter 14. There's a way that seems right to man, and its end is the way of death. You see, fleshly reasoning leads to walking in circles. And over and over again, you ought to go through the book of Numbers and underline this phrase. Over and over again, you will find the phrase journeying and camping. Journeying and camping. Journeying and camping. What were they doing? They were going nowhere. Why were they going nowhere? Murmuring and disbelief. Because they complained. Now listen. They murmured against God's blessings. They murmured against God's provision. They murmured against God's promises. They murmured against God's authority. They murmured against Moses' authority. They murmured about their circumstances. They murmured about their menu. I mean, they're just a bunch of murmurers. I mean, just say this. Just, just, let's just say the word murmur three times together. Okay, just do it. Murmur, murmur, murmur. That's so edifying, isn't it? Doesn't that sound edifying? Let's do it again. Murmur, murmur, murmur. Do it again. Murmur, murmur, murmur. It just sounds like somebody's given a bad report. Murmur, murmur, murmur. You ever been around murmuring people? You've never left that conversation going, man, I feel good. That was great. I'm so much better from having spent time with them. They murmured in disbelief. The land was in their grasp, and they died in the desert. Now, how many of them died? Well, if the fighting age was age 20, at the time that they began with the census, there were 603,000 men ready to go to war. So that means 20-year-old men and older. If they were married and had children in a space of 40 years, that's 1.2 million dead because of unbelief. That's 82 funerals a day. And you thought Kimball Stern and Matthews were busy. That's 82 funerals a day. The book of Numbers is just one dig after another. <laughs> hey, honey, what's your day look like? Shovel, pick, dirt. Body, dirt. Go dig another hole. Throw the body in, put dirt on top of it. Dig another hole. 40 years. Why? Because 10 people, and by the way, it doesn't take but 10 people to ruin a church either. Because 10 people said, we don't want to do what God says. And so for the next 40 years, their children had to do nothing but go to funerals. 
No joy in the land. They had to learn to trust God. That God had provided meat for them and food for them, and he had provided a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire to protect them. He protected them from their enemies, but they couldn't believe him for the land. Then the book of Deuteronomy. The book of Deuteronomy is a book of remembrance and transitions. And it clearly states in the book of Deuteronomy the blessings of obedience and the curse of disobedience. It only covers two months. This whole book only covers two months. And that includes the 30 days of mourning over the death of Moses. And so we have a, a book that the key verses, which are a collection of songs and, and uh, sermons by Moses, the key verses are Deuteronomy eleven twenty six through 28, chapter 6, verses 4 and 5, and chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, which tell us, remember and don't forget. Remember and don't forget. Lest you go into a land, and by the way, this is America in 2009. That's right. That's right. Lest you go in a hand with ha land that houses you did not build and fields that you did not plant, and you forget your God. That's where we are today. God has blessed us as a nation. He's put his hand on us as a nation. And we are walking away from him if we are not running away from him. And we've forgotten that the reason that we have the freedoms we have and the reason we have the privileges we have and the reason we have the blessings that we have is because God has shined his face on us, but he doesn't have to keep doing that because Deuteronomy is not that far removed from the book of Judges, which is where we're headed. So in Deuteronomy, you find key words, Jehovah our God, 300 times. And then there are other key words, 177 times you'll find do, keep, or observe. Now, why is the book of Deuteronomy important? First of all, it's the greatest book on parenting ever written. Because it tells us how to teach our children the Word of God. So it's the greatest book on parenting ever written. But the reason it is most important, it is the most quoted book by Christ of all the books of the Old Testament. He quotes Deuteronomy more than any other book that he quotes in his earthly ministry. So you and I need to know the book of Deuteronomy of remembrance and transitions. And, and you see words, uh, in fact, in chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. If you just make a mental note of that. Chapter 28 of Deuteronomy reveals the future of Israel. Moses prophesies in chapter 28 the future of what will happen in the nation of Israel. And he talks about being scattered and restless and sorrowful. What happened to the people of God? The dispersion, the ten tribes dispersed. Most of them lost today to us. The tribe of Judah stayed together for another hundred years or so. But most of the people of God, the covenant people of the Old Testament, scattered around the world. And so these five books... Four words. These are not in your notes. They're not going to come up on the screen. Five books, four words. You can't save yourself. Four more words. 
You can't fix yourself. Five words. God can deliver you today. You can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. But God can deliver you today. So what's going to happen with all this politics and all this stuff that's going on? Doesn't matter. What matters is, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? Because in the beginning in Genesis in chapter 3, it is prophesied that a Messiah would come. And that Messiah would one day save his people from their sin. And that Messiah has come in his person of Jesus Christ, the sinless Savior, the fulfillment of all the prophecies of the Old Testament. And the more I travel his land and see the history of that land, the more I am convinced that when God wrote the Bible, he knew what he was doing. Because I see on that land the footprints of God. They're not the footprints of a prophet. They're not the footprints of a good teacher. They're not the footprints of a moral example. They are the footprints of God in flesh coming to reveal himself to mankind and say, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no man can come to the Father but by me. You see, you can't save yourself. And you can't fix yourself. But the good news today is somebody has come that can save you and can fix you and can take you out of your wandering and put you on a path, can take you out of your brokenness and make you whole again, can show you the blessings of obeying God and His Word as opposed to all the mistakes and the scrapes and the bruises you've had from trying to run life on your terms. So five books, one person. There's one person that's central in all of this, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Thanks for listening to today's podcast from Sherwood Baptist Church and Pastor Michael Gatt. For more information about Sherwood, you can visit our website at sherwoodbaptist.net. If you live or visit in the Albany area, we invite you to worship with us here at Sherwood. Thanks again for listening, and have a great day.